Wasting a perfectly good bottle of Dom on on John Harmon's ghetto sled. It's V'ger, please. My name is Joseph. And I'm your uh, Patreon-funded co-host, Peter. Indeed, this is a Patreon-funded episode of V'ger, please. Thank you to our patrons. This is basically for you. And what we've chosen to do this time is something that... Um, we somehow managed to not do after over the last four years, and that is review a piece of Star Trek media uh, with the TNG cast in it, which is really a homecoming for you specifically, Peter. Uh, we've somehow never done this. And that's what I was thinking about a lot while we were preparing to do this. We've talked more about Next Generation than we actually did Voyager for a lot of our episodes. Uh, we had a great time reviewing the TNG porn parody. Oh, yes. And unfortunately, we dipped our toe into Picard, which clearly was bitten off and then got AIDS, (laughs) which is not real, you know, Star Trek. (laughs) Not at all. Not even remotely. (laughs) uh, What's important about this is it's Berman era TNG. All of these guys are hot off the set of season seven of Next Gen. They should all be at the peak of their game. Everybody should understand these characters and no beats should be lost. The writing staff involved in this movie wrote a lot of next gen. So this is the real deal. Yeah. What are we reviewing, Peter? This is (laughs) Patreon episode, whatever (laughs) episode, whatever. This is Star Trek Generations or Star Trek seven, which is a weird way to refer to it. So before I will discuss the movie and our opinions of it, let's continue to dig into this background because i think there's a lot of interesting kind of context particularly as we're looking at enterprise which was is produced essentially a decade ish after this you know and you think about the the passage of time is going to be a theme in this episode on on a meta level because not only is it obviously a, a big part of the film itself but i think is the most interesting thing to reflect on as we look at this this movie that's 28 years old this was authorized by Paramount while TNG was in season six, which is probably peak TNG. And it was authorized because Star Trek six actually wound up being successful. So if you remember, the Star Trek movies went from, you know, Star Trek one, eh, it was all right. You know, it made, it made money. It, there was a cheaper sequel made, but that sequel fucking knocked the doors off. Rathacon. And that opened up Star Trek 3 and 4 being made immediately after that. 4 was a monster hit. That was actually a big mainstream hit. Star Trek 5 was not very well received. It was considered often amongst the worst of the Trek films overall, for good reason. 6 still got uh, made because while 5 was a poor performer in the box office and qualitatively bad, the tech that got unleashed was home movies at this point that became a much bigger market trek fans tend to be the type that are into buying vhs and so star trek 6 kind of followed in the same mode as star trek 2 in fact had the same director where it was a cheaper sequel that ultimately once again was well received because it had that kind of shakespearean drama element because of that all right well you know i think we've played these old series guys out uh you know as much as we can we've got this tng thing it's hot as shit we know that we're selling it like hotcakes to all of our, our uh, partners in syndication. Let's do a movie out of this. But And real quick, you've got DS9. 
you got Voyager cooking like the the Star Trek machine is at the peak of its its might. And they didn't want to spend too much money on it either. So that was part of the what Paramount's uh, authorization here was was for a pretty low budget. Thirty five million was all they spent on this thing. And they very much had to make use of their TV sets and, you know, all the bits and pieces they had laying around. Why do you think they were so cheap? You know, in the end, while Star Trek is a pretty marketable property, there was a concern that the original crew was what was bringing people to watch those films because it had the, at that point, 30 or so years of cultural cachet behind it. And while TNG was successful in syndication and in season seven even got nominated for that Emmy, uh, it was still something where its marketability to a mass audience and something like a movie was kind of unproven. You know, there aren't ratings to look at to really know how many people are watching this. You think you know, but you don't actually know. So you hedge your bets a little bit. Let's do the movie, but I'm only going to – I'm going to make sure that the money I'm giving you, I can get back out of this even if it ends up bombing. It makes sense from a business perspective. They touch a little bit in the – take season three, four, five, six, seven of Voyagers, every single episode's production notes in Memory Alpha – Put those all in a file, put them together. And that is what Star Trek Generations memory alpha entry looks like. I can't yeah, even well tell document you. it. <laughs> the decision to include the old cast with the new cast seems playful and like, hey, what if I'm wondering how much of that's bullshit and how much of that's Berman and company sweating and being like, we need to give the studio uh, confidence in what we're doing. Just trot these guys out or what we can get the old guys out one last time. So we've got that, uh, that anchor to, to chill the Paramount execs out with. That evidently was in the mix from the very start. Like the entire pitch behind the doing it was you have to hand the baton off because they, the idea here is let's demonstrate to the audience that is the movie going audience that's watching these films that yes, this is now going from uh, a, a Kirk and company story to a Picard and company story. And so that was, that was always going to be part of what they did. Um, it, you know, and uh, these, these notes are go on for pages and pages and it underwent a lot of, of changes. You know, they obviously, they wanted to have the prologue and involve the trio, you know, that was supposed to be a, a Kirk Spock McCoy thing terms of like availability of actors DeForest Kelly uh, didn't want to come back at all. Cause at that point he was essentially completely retired. He was in his seventies already. Like Star Trek six was, he was done after that doing acting and uh, Leonard Nimoy was in one of his phases where he was very like not wanting too to good do, for Trek. He didn't want to do Spock. So, you know, it turned into going to the B tier <laughs> So you got Scotty and Chekhov there instead. So those kinds of changes happened. But this always was supposed to be a hand the baton off kind of element to it. And, you know, they built the story around that. Um, I thought that from a production perspective, the most interesting thing to me is that they were shooting this thing at the same time that they were wrapping season seven of TNG. So they, they were doing everything that didn't involve being on a... TNG set 
you know, while they were still doing the episodes. And once all good things wrapped, literally four days later, they were redressing the sets and getting them ready to do the the movie shots. How fatiguing. Uh, that had to be a lot. And and Ron Moore actually did talk about how it was like we had to fucking wrap this whole season of television and produce a movie at the same time. By the time we were done with this, we wanted to kill each other. It was awful. <laughs> like while also, I mean, again, DS9's running, right? Yeah. And that's a different team, I you know, that is doing that someplace else, but it's still probably taxing on Berman because he's supposed to be in control of all this. I mean, how's he supposed to force boobies and, and boomer humor into uh, <laughs> into all of his little babies if he's getting pulled to these movie sets? Well, that, talk- brain, that brain rot hadn't quite kicked in yet. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I have a feeling that Kess was supposed to be a little sexier. Oh, I'm talking about I'm, I'm talking about generations. The, the, the closest you get to boob humor is just the presence of the Duras sisters. I'll take what I can get. You know, them, them, them Duras. It is crazy. I, I just sat here and did the math. This movie, because I saw this in theaters, right? I yeah, very so I. vividly remember it. Uh, that the taste of disappointment is still fresh in my mouth. What? You mean greatness? This movie came out November 18th, 1994, which by my math, and I can't, I can't believe this. I was only 12 and a half years old when I saw this thing. Remember yeah. my mom driving me to the theater with my friend. We went out to the good one out in Mentor, the good theater, uh, and seeing it. And that was my first Star Trek movie that I saw in a movie theater. I was super big Star Trek Next Generation nerd at that point. I had all the Playmates figures. I mean, I was I was firing on all cylinders with this. And I was so excited coming in off of the peak excellence of all good things to see a badass Star Trek The Next Generation movie and uh, just a colossal disappointment at the time. I also watched it in theaters. I... I, I don't know if I ever told the story of how I watched all good things. Uh, I got dragged to like one of those parties that your, your parents have with their family, f- with, with their old friends, you know, and they've got kids as well. And you, they just kind of like hope you all entertain each other, but we had nothing in common. So I like found a study upstairs with rabbit ear television because I, because I really wanted to watch. I knew it was on. I knew it was going to be on Fox at eight o'clock and cause it was in the newspaper. And I, I just basically spirited myself away and found this room. No one was in because the party was going on and all the other kids my age were elsewhere, closed the door and got that thing tuned in. And I watched it. No one knew I was gone until it was over. (laughs) That sounds sounds miserable. I hope it was like a good reception. At least it was. I like, dude, I was, I was so happy to be watching it. The fact that it wasn't perfect. didn't bother me. I thought you were going to tell me that it was like a big viewing party and you had to try and watch all good things with like 10 other people in the room, four of which don't like star Trek and are talking about church or whatever. You know, I fortunately got to enjoy it by myself. It was perfect. And then I was very much wanting to watch it in this in theaters. And I watched it and I didn't enjoy it as much when I was a kid because I was about, and it would have been 11. Um, this movie has grown on me through the years significantly to the point where I consider this the best TNG movie. Yeah. And I wouldn't even call it close anymore. Yeah. 11 year old Joe had really great taste. It's a shame what happened to him. 
fucking bitch. Here's what I, <laughs> here, here's what I always... Until we had this podcast start, and I really started turning my adult attentions back towards my old love of Star Trek, the, the lingering thoughts that always kind of hung with me regarding Generations was that it was a big... The way I had perceived it as apparently a 12 and a half year old, mm-hmm. that it was a Rick Berman power grab, that the destruction of the Enterprise D was symbolic, uh, the death of Kirk was symbolic in taking the last vestiges of um, Roddenberry, laying him to rest, that the idealized post-scarcity utopia, Federation utopia of Rick Berman's... of. Uh, of Roddenberry's dreams had been replaced by this gritty uh, war drama section 31 Rick Berman shit show. I mean, obviously context being what it is and seeing every, all the truck made after this, that's not true. I mean, they continued to, to have all of those elements present in the truck that gets produced after this. To be fair, I, I think it was generations that actually turned me off to truck for a while. And I think it might be generations why I never bothered really getting into Deep Space Nine and why I never even uh, watched any Voyager or Enterprise at all. That it, it was such a turnoff seeing what happened in this one that I was like, all right, man, this this dude's just, I don't know, it's time to get into boobs. I'm moving on to greener pastures. <laughs> well, here we are. Revisiting the film. I've rewatched this recently-ish with V'ger Please uh, fans, and I defended it then in real time with everyone who watched, including Dar- Darius, who who did his best you impression of someone who did not like the film. Um, and, you know, I watched it again before we decided to review it here, and I love it more and more as time goes on. You might want to check for a gas leak in your house. I am I am literally dying as we speak from carbon monoxide poisoning. I think that the the best framing device on this, the, the most visible symbolic thing to this movie is the uniforms and the complete shit show yes. that they are. I, I think it's indicative of this movie as a whole that they had a plan that they uh, changed last minute and for the life of them, they just couldn't get everybody on the same page understanding what mo- what what it is they were there to do. There is nothing uniform about this movie. Uh, and and to myself coming up with, and I know Jonathan likes my little metaphors here, watching this movie, watching Generations feels like getting into bed like you just took a shower and you jumped directly into bed. Like it should be this warm and familiar thing, but you just can't get comfortable. It it feels fundamentally wrong watching this. It is certainly I agree. It's, movie's far from perfect. The symbolic nature of some of the production crap in this is still funny every time I see it. Every time I see fucking William Riker crossing his arms on his chest with that fucking uniform that is like six inches too short. I cannot help but be like, why did you, why, when you saw this in the monitor, why the fuck are you not calling, fighting your costume department? Like, what is wrong with you? 
This is still a $35 million operation. Like, don't tell me you can't get a fucking uniform uh, <laughs> smock that fucking fits. Let's talk uniforms for a minute because it is, it just beats you over a head the entire movie. They, and I know this because I have the fucking Star Trek Generations action figures Playmates put out, Data specifically, and they had these cool looking new side zip uniforms that kind of look like a evolved version of the dress uniform where the the one part crosses over the breast. You have the division coloring on a standing collar and then the traditional TNG black tops and then the division color without like the weird triangle thing over the belly button. Pips were on the sleeves. They looked cool as action figures. I saw the test footage that they had of how they actually looked on the actors. They looked shitty. I don't think they made the wrong decision. Uh, abandoning those uniforms. And then you have this just maniac decision-making process of, okay, some scenes. Okay. We're not going to use the new uniforms. So what are your options? Right. Use, use the season seven, what? $30,000 per piece. Badass uniforms that you had, which I get it. They weren't perfect. They smelled whatever. That's option one. Option two is, go with the DS nine jumpsuit, which I personally hate or option three, all, all of the above. <laughs> so what now with the, but they choose option four, all of the above, but we didn't fit anything to anyone, which is just like, so it's a movie. It's, it's okay. Let's you got the budget. Let's take a step back. A lot of the things that they had to do were, we have to use all of the Buffalo, right? And some of it works. The production design choices. I love the lighting decisions that they made on the Enterprise to turn the lights down and to crowd the sets with more people. Why do they do that? Because this is in, on film. It's in higher definition than, than what's on TV. We have to hide the stuff looks cheap, right? Because it's TV sets that were meant to be seen on your fucking rabbit ears. Now, this is going to be on a, t- on a movie screen. It's going to be blown up. It's going to be in better definition. So what are we going to do to hide that we're using this stuff? turn the lights down, throw a bunch of people onto the set. You know, it, it's going to, it's going to crowd out that cheapness. And some of that works. The fucking costumes, they have the same problem. These jumpsuits from 1989 or whatever from season three onward uh, look cheap. You know, they got the zipper in the back. They, they, they look like I'm some shaking f- my head. No, no, no. That is peak uniform to me personally. And I think, it's nostalgic, but if you are looking at it from the perspective of I want to capture the attention of a movie-going audience that is not a diehard Trek fan, I want it to look slick. Who's watching this fucking movie that's not a diehard Trek fan. I refuse to believe that there were casuals going in to see Star Trek movies ever at any point ever. I know that like in the year of our Lord 2022, that might seem like a crazy idea. But at the time, it was not. At the time, Star Trek is something that you could consume casually. And there was, in fact, an audience of people who from 1979 onward was consuming Star Trek as a movie franchise. And so you wanted to make sure you captured and retained that. And they did, by the way, succeed in doing that. This movie did pretty good. And First Contact did great. What's a bigger turnoff to that person seeing uh, Jonathan Frakes in a uh, military uniform where there is a zipper on the back or him 
like a fucking child that hit a growth spurt wearing his little brother's clothes. Don't you? I was about to get to that. I get that they felt they needed to do something with the uniforms and the DS9 ones look better on film. Why? Because they're black and you're not seeing the zipper. But the inexplicable choice was let's not fit any of these to our actors and let's just throw them on them straight from the DS9 like lot. So like we're just going to put Patrick Stewart and Avery Brooks as captain's uniform. I think Patrick Stewart got his own. It was LaForge was in Columnini's, and I think uh, Riker was in Cisco's. Okay, right? that's, yeah. And if you're going to say, all right, well, Riker is going to be in this ill-fitted uniform, roll the sleeves up so we don't notice how short the sleeves are. But then he keeps the fucking ugly purple turtleneck sleeves like down. Like, who rolls up their coat sleeves but leaves their t-shirt sleeves down? It looks fucking awful, and it looks twice as bad because the scene prior to that, he's wearing his next-gen uniform. And then you got Jordy in his Call Mini one where it's like he looks like a sixth grader about to go to his first dance. And the fucking These guys... I, this is a movie. Had they just said, <laughs> fuck it, everybody's in DS9 uniforms and everybody's in DS9 uniforms, that's one thing. Had they said, hey, just... Re, you know, reuse the fucking season seven uniforms and, you know, all the junior grade bullshit guys. Those can be in the fucking old spandex leotards. That's fine. That's perfect continuity there. And again, I maintain those uniforms still look great. But saying in this scene, uh, Picard's in his season seven uh, uniform. Then he's going to be in his jumpsuit. Then he's going to be back in that. It's so erratic and fucking crazy. And again, there's not even a line of dialogue saying, man, replicators are having a hard time with these new uniforms with us deploying. None of that at all. I just don't understand how you see that in the monitor of your shot and be like, yeah, this is fine. Let's print it. Like, and and I know that were they that jammed for time? Were they just that desperate to get this done? Dude. And, you know, we're we're sitting here, we're splitting hairs about the fucking uniforms that that's a big chunk. I love Star Trek because of the military space stuff. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. uniforms and cool looking ships. Picard fucked up the cool looking ships at the end of season one. Generations fucked up the uniforms here. Unforgivable. And and who is looking through this monitor? Okay. Produced the the Star Trek seven produced by David Carson, who I will know from his next gen. He's got a pretty good pedigree here, right? Enemy. That's the one where Jordy gets stuck on the uh, planet surface with the Romulan. Correct. And they have to like work together. A very dark, like lighting wise, dark episode. Uh, yesterday's Enterprise, one of the all-time best. My mm-hmm. favorite time travel. No, god damn. Did Timeless dethrone Yesterday's Enterprise? No. Hard no. I don't yesterday's know, Enterprise is better. I gosh, I don't know. No, Patrick Stewart's so good in that. Like the difference between the different Picards and how yeah, Garrett Long Dressing. is actually like decent in that. That's a Garrett Wong at at the peak of his powers is still 80%. I know, but it's impressive that he's not that good. Uh, Yesterday's Enterprise, fucking phenomenal. Top three next gen for sure. A very lighting wise dark episode. And it's very clear to look at the bridge in Generations D and see Yesterday's Enterprise written all over that in terms of like. This guy is good at lighting. Like, he's very good at using lighting. Redemption Part 2. Was that a dark one? Was that Worf and the Dura sisters? 
um, they that was when uh, Sila was attempting to do like the it's war versus Duras, and then Sila's yeah. in there too. So that's that's again playing two plot elements going on here with with, with Duras versus Worf. And then the next phase, and that's what the one where they get caught in the where they think that Jordy and Roe are dead. dead. Yeah. Shame she couldn't be around Michelle uh, Forbes, but, you know, she's busy off disappointing her dad. <laughs> so what? So let's get off the, the uniforms for a second. And we're not going to necess- go over a plot point because we would be here for way too long if we were to do that. What works about this? I already mentioned the lighting. I think the lighting works. You haven't said anything about that, but from your, you're talking about the darkness that this director is known for utilizing. I can't say that the darkness on the bridge looks better or would look better in a TV show or what Star Trek next generation normally is when it's not being in, what is this considered an action adventure sci-fi mystery? It looks good for the movie. I don't mind it all as a one-off. It wouldn't be something I wanted all the time. Right. It's what I do. This. I do think that the bridge actually looking like a busy command center instead of um, Holiday Inn Express, a, a lightly patronized singles bar. <laughs> I, I liked the idea of the ship feeling more lived in and crowded. Uh, it looks like a, a thousand people are on that motherfucker. Yeah. And uh let's let's number one with a bullet i like this i love this movie as much as i do because patrick stewart is amazing in it it is it is a shame in a way to have to reflect on how far things have fallen for him but he is fucking amazing in this he has to carry the emotional weight of this film from beginning to end and he does is a yes, except for anything he is sharing a scene with William Shatner. I actually liked the way he approached that, where he is a little cautious because it's like, oh my god, this guy is like the living legend of Starfleet captains, and I'm not quite sure how to approach him. Um, is the vibe he was giving like, uh, yes, hello, you are literally the best who ever did this, and I'm encountering you suddenly in this very strange circumstance. A little, uh, I thought that was actually a cool choice. But, it but, felt to me like two great tastes that taste awful together. I think that everything that makes Patrick that made back in the day Patrick Stewart a great. Jean-Luc Picard had to get checked at the door in any scene that he shares with William Shatner. It feels like Picard slash Stewart comes off acting uh, submissive or like he's dumbing down the character so that it accommodates Kirk looking a little bit better instead of it being Picard being adult and Kirk. Yeah, being and a- I'm sure that was an act. That wasn't probably a note he got like like this is how I want you to play it, because this is the moment where Kirk gets to, sh- you know, kind of show back up in the sure. film when him be the focus. So play it as if you're a little bashful. I, I thought it worked for what they were trying to do, but the, the, the fucking scene where he is in the, his fucking quarters with that, that damn like picture book of his family is put that on a fucking, you know, highlight reel of this is what acting is like, it would walking away. It was fucking amazing. Yes. 
and even the small stuff, like he's on the boat where they're doing the thing for Worf and he's, you know, having a good time, you know, with, with, with the crew to the extent Jean-Luc is capable, which is more in keeping with his character as we understand Which, again, it. coming off the tail end of all good things, should be substa- more open with his crew than he has ever been before. And I'm not going to say that his choice is to closely guard the death of his children, of his, uh, his family, um, was wrong. You know, right. for whatever opening up Picard did, like a system shocker like that, of course, he's going to revert to his old ways. I will criticize the script. I think they made Riker come off like a real bitch. You know, John Luke's getting snippy on some stuff and like Frakes is throwing these eyes like these salty butthurt. Man, I'm mad at mommy. Mommy was mean to me like these looks like. He's trying to penetrate like he's trying to like get him to tell him what's up and he's being blunt because they're dudes like I kind of get it. I don't think he was being bitchy so much as he was being piercing. But like if he gets the news, it's all in his face. Uh, You know, he goes to the bridge and he's got to fucking swallow all of this emotion, right? Like he's got to he's got to find a way to to get through what's going on so he can find a space to mourn. And as you know, the movie goes on, he has that first scene with Malcolm McDowell's character, Dr. Soren where, and I thought this was very clever because Soren is an Alarian and he is very empathetic and capable of understanding what's, you know, social cues. He knows he's mourning something and he plays into that when in his conversation, yeah, I had and, a like, question. On gets that. him to like fuck, brushes him back on it. Like I thought, all of this stuff worked super well, and it hinged to go to that scene where he finally is like mourning what happened to his family, and talks about like what. I mean, it's it's almost it's it's a disservice to describe it rather than just watch it of the how he gets into a space where he is authentically mourning the death of not only his, what remains of his extended family and, you know, the personal loss that that brings him, but also the sort of generational loss, the loss to time and also his own lost opportunity to carry forward with his own family. There's a line in that scene with Troy that, you know, like he says, like I've become more aware recently that there are fewer days ahead than there are behind. You know, like he's had the revelation that he is over the the horizon when it comes to his his time amongst the living. But he takes sol- he took solace on the fact that there would be another Picard after him, and now there isn't. So what the fuck? You know, like he's what do I do? You know, like this this it's awesome. It's awesome. And the older I get, and the more I I watch that scene, the more I love it. Yeah, hands down, it's the best part of generations. Yeah, and and I'm I'm happy to give you all of that. Um, let's jump over back in time real quick. Mm-hmm. I thought all the Enterprise B stuff was great. Yeah, I thought it was kind of goofy that they did have to go with uh, fucking like having Scotty there. Legit. Uh, check check off. off. That's a bit of a reach. <laughs> no one else. Oh, no budget, one else. you devil. No one else was picking up the phone. I liked uh, John Harriman being the worst captain of the Enterprise ever. <laughs> so, yeah, you, know, you are given the Enterprise B 
This is presumably the new flagship of the Federation. This is taking place, by the way, month just a few months after Star Trek VI. This is just after Kirk is retired and Enterprise A is off uh, and decommissioned. And you're so. telling me this guy is the best Starfleet could come up with? Not buying it. I, I get what they're going for there, and I get that they're trying to build this uh, this intense burning pressure for Kirk to be on the bridge and to take command, and that this guy, who seems like a nice guy, just isn't cut out, and you know, Daddy eventually has to come save the day. But it, that he, also- seem, he seems like a guy who's friends with Ferris Bueller. You know, like it's the, he's he's like his he's he's just uh, overmatched with the with the circumstances around him. I like the press corps there, and that's really the first time I think in Star Trek that we see Earth press involved in anything, and that's obviously there to kind of like build pressure. The damage that the B takes across the deflector dish where Kirk gets sucked out into space, that all looked really cool from like a practical effects standpoint. I never liked the B itself. Like that shit on the secondary hull always bothered me, but uh, it was cool to finally see it and Overall, I'm a fan of the Excelsior stuff. So that works. And I think that Kirk throughout this plays pretty true to form, all things considered. Yeah, he does. Uh, The subplot about Data and his emotions, the chip, his choices, the hardships he goes through. It starts in a really good place. I think that like the spirit behind the plot line of picking that up from the show first and foremost, right? Like this was from something from end of season seven, uh, end of season six, beginning of season seven, when, you know, in the encountered lore and he, he got the chip and well, he got the actually from earlier from brothers or when he, when he got lore stole the chip yeah. in brothers. And then in uh, whatever the one with the rogue Borg mercenaries, it wasn't reunification, whatever it was, it was unification. I'm pretty sure that's what that was called. Yeah, the unification part two, they kill Lore. Data harvests the motion chip off of him, says, maybe one day I'll use this. I'm going to put it on the shelf. It's this real snap decision. Like they're they're doing a LARP for Worf's promotion to get up that lieutenant commander status. Mm-hmm. So Data shoves Crusher, who gets like zero lines. It's <laughs> for as bad of a fit as Chekhov is in this movie, the fact that he gets more screen time than like Worf and Crusher combined is some real <laughs> shit, I think. Well, Crusher is barely in any of these films, if you recall. Like, she is not a focused character of any of the four TNG outings. And again, for Troy just consistently being a potted plant through seasons one through seven, the fact that she's getting more screen time than Crusher is really. She gets significant screen time in this. In in Nemesis, and she she punches above weight even in in uh, First Contact because she gets that whole scene with Cochran in the bar that's like a fucking classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like Troy certainly outpaces. Jordy's all like, "No, Data shoving Crusher in the water wasn't funny. That's a lie. It was fucking hilarious." <laughs> uh, she's all stank about it. And uh, Data makes a snap decision that like, uh, yeah, you know what? Now is the time for me to install this chip and zero consultation with anybody else. It's just literally they're sitting there at the table doing their homework. And he's like, 
yeah, I'm going to plug this thing that the last time it was plugged into something was my fucking homicidal Android superiority brother. I hope this thing doesn't have a copy of fucking I love you virus on it or anything. Well, it's worth circling back, I think, to an earlier theory that you and I have discussed. It's one of my favorite theories that we've Mm -hmm. had, which is it's not that data needs this chip to have emotions. Data already has emotions. This is this is a piece uh, that will remove the limiter on his emotions. And we established that because data's behavior has always had an emotional element to it. When he is questioned or chastised, he will respond in a way that suggests it bothers him without saying it bothers him with like rapid fire questions and like defensiveness that's a little passive aggressive. And even here where he's talking to Jordy and he's in soft tones, he's talking about it. There's the very hint of self-reflection and aware and self-awareness and sorrow in the fact that he hasn't quite been able to figure this out. Why? Because he has emotions. But Dr. Soong, realizing the fucking problem that he had with Lore, and that Lore was governed by his emotions so much that he became a psycho, that I've got to strictly limit the emotions on Data to start and let him grow into them or they will overwhelm him. And this final gift that Soong intended to give Data was to remove that limitation the key to unlocking things not not to remove it and this is a theme throughout tng that i think you know where he gets the dreams and he sees his father in his dreams and it's like this this all makes sense to me that it's not that he does not have emotions this is merely removing the limitations on uh, my my nitpickiness here is that he undertakes a major surgery uh right after they just found out that the fucking the sneaky fucking Romulans are launching uh, shadow raids against yeah. Federation star bases. And maybe now is not the good time to do something like this without your captain who's going through intense personal trauma, even knowing about it. So whatever, you got to have the, the plot happen. It, it, it felt a little rush. It felt a little silly, even if it does fit the bigger character arc of what's going on the biggest sin of that plot line is just that half the jokes they decide to do out of it are more annoying than funny well that gosh were they supposed to be annoying i feel like the way that they were played out it was meant to be annoying and i think that jordy being over that shit especially when they're off on the way team yeah that uh, was definitely meant to be annoying i just thought like the life forms do 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 Scanning for some life phone precious do, do, do. Listen, you gotta keep the spiner feds happy. All right. That, <laughs> that was that was you know playing to the, the fan base there, making sure that that money was in hand and those tickets were being purchased frequently. I want to talk about Soren. Malcolm McDowell. Our second our second Patreon episode with Malcolm McDowell. He was the bad guy in Tank Girl. <laughs> he was. I was just thinking about that and where uh I, I felt really bad for him being in Tank Girl and saying, like, dude, what what did you do? Who did you piss off? Why would you get into this? I never had a good memory of Soren, and I felt it was a shitty villain. The rewatch on this, he does a great job. And I think for being a Star Trek villain, it comes off as really well-rounded. He is man addicted to something. He is clearly 
driven by that addiction. He utilizes, like I said, the best scene is him figuring out Picard is weak and using that to throw him off and get him off his case. And I, I liked the scene where he's talking to him when he's on the planet and he's talking about what happened to his family and the Borg and he's doing it while doing the walk and talk while he's like putting his plan in place. Very well structured in that. Like he just gets to be honest about like, yeah, okay. I'm like, I don't care that I'm killing these people because death is a certainty. The world, the, the universe is a cold, unfeeling place. Terrible things happen to everyone. I've decided I'm going to opt out and I'm going to go into a space time paradise. Fuck you. I like that. He is a scientist first and foremost. And I think that works well for how he is able to accomplish this real dirty terrorist plan. He's working with the Dura sisters as muscle. Great uh, addition. I love the fact they pulled the Dura sisters out for this. Yes. An old antagonist that fits perfectly into the role that they wanted to use them for. The only thing I need to change is get them out of that fucking antique they're flying around. And that'll be its own conversation when we get to the death of the D. But, you know, he's got hired muscle that's competent. His his fist fights and all that stuff. He's fighting other old men. So none of that really seems like anybody looks embarrassed. Right. And majority of the time he's got a gun so he can keep that that upper hand. And I like how cavalier he is with no fucks to give to the point where he's like insulting the Dura sisters and they're like palm striking him and he's got their blood. Oh, no, actually, he hit he hits uh, Lursula, doesn't he? Yes, he does. So I, I will say that uh, this was a this viewing was a big redeeming uh, point for McDowell and the Soren character specifically. But I will say that his ability to pinpoint Picard's weakness is one thing, but to directly hone in on the fact that he just recently lost family in a fire, like he has to be telepathic. Yeah, it's a good point. You, you, you raise a good point. When you said time is the fire in which we burn, is that just something that was a turn of phrase he used and he, he saw how that affected him and like got the read the way that an LRian can? Or was it that he is mildly telepathic? It was on the forefront of his brain. And so he pulled that out and used that and then started just drawing off it. Hard to know because LRians are, are clearly mystical and undefined. So could be either. But I like that it was done without it being super explicit. And it really relied on Patrick Stewart's face reacting to what he was saying and him clearly figuring out that he was on to something. And I thought that was just like, yes, these are two good actors doing good acting together. I love it. Soren falls apart a little bit for a guy who's willing to kill an entire planet to accomplish his goals. Why he tolerates this variable of Jean-Luc Picard's presence on the planet's surface with him is beyond me. I'm going to assume maybe he can't shoot out through that energy field. It seemed to be it. Like he's kept him out, but he can't shoot him because it would hit the barrier. I didn't feel like they had to spell that out any more than they did. I think it would be beyond a shadow of a doubt that he would have just told the fucking Dura sisters, beam this fool into space. I don't need this fucking nonsense when I'm about to accomplish my life's work and see my family again. But again, it's a movie. I understand why we got to do that stuff. I do like when the Nexus 
event happens and Picard is in his fantasy. It's an Edwardian Christmas. <laughs> like it's, uh, you know, it's it, 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 they pay off the theme particularly well, which is why is this Picard's fantasy? Well, it's because it's on his mind, right? Like his entire film is about how he has not had this and he is instead devoted his life to service but it has left him feeling now particularly empty and alone and vulnerable in that. And it goes back to what you said about him trying to be less rigid and more understanding of self uh, that we saw as a consequence of all good things. And I, I like that. That's what it like. It become it became like this joke of like, yes, of course he thinks you should have like a fucking Charles Dickens Christmas is what Jean-Luc Picard's fantasy is. But like, no, it makes sense. It's subconscious expressing that desire. And to be fair, it's not like that was set back in time. I mean, when the kids are opening up their, um, when the kids are opening up their Christmas presents, one of the boys, I specifically saw a toy that was part of uh, aliens it wasn't the fucking Cherokee drop ship from aliens, but it was like this fighter thing that had a big jar that would drop down and catch aliens and fly. So the, the, the kids opening up futurist looking toys. So uh, it's whatever earth would have been for him. Yeah. yeah it's his fantasy. So it's his kid. fantasy. It was all very charming. I like that stuff a lot. Being a family man myself now, like I really felt for him. I, it was clever of them to build that Christmas scene in since this was a November release and it, you know, tis the season mm-hmm. coming in. All that stuff was great. They pop in Guinan. Oh, you know, she kind of helps pull them out a little bit. Yeah. You know, you're in the Nexus part of me is in the Nexus. And the film has an effective use of Guinan because Guinan is seen in the, in the sort of the prelude period as one of the LRE and refugees that she, as they establish, that she had knew who Soren was so that she can provide the, the exposition in a way that makes a lot of sense. And that scene that actually Picard had with Guinan as well, that goes to something I mentioned at the top, which was, it was very interesting to watch this movie and watch these two in this scene together and the quality of that scene and how it was structured and the quality of their ability to do something pretty straightforward you know, this discussion about the villain, what the stakes are, what his what his motivation is, standard story building movie stuff. It's very good. And then you turn around and these same two actors playing these same two characters just had to do this again in Picard season two. And I knew that that scene happened. I had not I had not watched it. So I found it on YouTube and I watched it and I then vomited projectile all over. It was awful. And it was really painful to see how far these two had fallen down the mountain over the last 28 years and their ability to do these basic acting things. And I really wish they let Patrick Stewart fucking rest. The man needs to retire. He cannot do this anymore. And I look at who he is now and then I go back to this and I'm like, Jesus, it is like night and day. Night and day. It's awful. Speaking of a night and day, uh, Picard finally breaks free of the fantasy that he has created for himself. 
And this just feels silly the way they play it out. But Guinan goes, I think I know someone who might be able to help you. A special guest star. <laughs> hey! it's, it's your boy, Bill Shatner. Here he is. I uh, like, I like, like you said before, I like Kirk. Kirk is good in this as restless in retirement. I like the, like in the prelude where he's got all the, the fucking answers to all the questions because he's done it a million times, but, but ultimately like a set, you know, realizes he needs to get out of the chair and he's let Ardman takes it, take command and all that. Like the use of him there was good. And then this, it's good too, where he has what the same problem Picard had. He allowed his life to get away from him. He decided to devote himself to Starfleet. He regrets that now that that part of his life is over. He has nothing to turn to. You know, he has no, he has an empty house. That's how he puts it. I, I, like, I like how he frames it. Was v- Cinematically, it all works. It's a good time for them to talk alone and for Kirk to come off as uh, flippant and disinterested in anything that Picard is pitching. Looking to Kirk as a character, his choice for his essentially heaven, because this is what this is, right? This is right. heaven. Mm-hmm. That he would pick a domesticated life as his heaven, as opposed to being back on the bridge of the 1701. Because if there's anything that I saw in that opening sequence, it is that more than anything else, Kirk wants to be in that captain's chair to the point where it kills him. He makes the, the, he rips himself away and says, no, it's time for other people uh, to his own, his own literal downfall. So I, I think that had they had the fucking cast there, or had the ability to like deep fake people and make him look young. Uh, realistically, these sh- scenes should have been him back on the Enterprise bridge, living out his fantasies. And the same thing, Drummond, like this is all fantasy. None of this has consequence. I can help you in your real mission at the cost of my heaven to have an impact again. And that's what I'm about. You make a compelling case. I will point out that it was on his mind as well because of this encounter with Ensign Sulu on, on the fair point, fair point. They, they introduced that thread of like, he was forced to confront that, you know, I did chose not to do that. Didn't I? And now that I'm retired newly retired, I don't have anything. And that's part of the reason why he wants to be in the chair because it's all he has. You know, he, he devoted his life to that craft and then it was over and there was nothing else left behind. And that's what he was on his subconscious the same way it was on, on Picard's subconscious of like, this is the part of life I missed. This is what I don't have. This is therefore what is manifest in my heaven. Same with, with, with him. Like I chose, I had this last opportunity, this relatively recent last opportunity to not go back to start late and, and to build this other piece of my life to use the expression from Avengers Endgame, Like, the simple life. I decided to get some of that life. Tony, Tony tried me to try, you know, like that was Captain America's ending ultimately. And it was super satisfactory for the film because of how much they built around it. And it's a similar sort of idea here, but what, what, what are we doing narratively? We're, We're demonstrating that both Picard and Kirk share the same virtue, which is they are dedicated servants to the mission of Starfleet. They are captains of the enterprise. They are the very best of the best. And even heaven cannot keep them away from their duty. I liked it. I liked how that worked. 
And that's why I like this movie. This is the most TNG like film. Like if, if you, of all of the four TNG movies, this is the one that feels like an episode of Star Trek, the next generation in terms of its themes, in terms of its, if, if it's the idealism of it uh, in that there's a lot of talking, a lot of philosophy, you know, like first contact's a good action film, obviously insurrection and nemesis are just bad. This is definitely the best Star Trek next generation film that in terms of it feeling like it's source material. It has the most feelings and I'm not going to say it's the best based on that, but for a TV show whose format should not be compatible with a major motion picture uh, paradigm. Yes, they do a good job of bringing a lot of what made next gen next gen into the big screen. Uh, I want to switch over to the Klingon Enterprise uh, kerfuffle. Yeah, I mean, now that I have gotten you to belatedly provide some praise to this film in a few places and and burnished its credentials and talked oh, about. Oh, I'm saving the worst for last. Yeah, I, 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 I just want we're, you. We're not even. We're not even there yet. Don't worry. I, I've got some haymakers to fucking throw here. If there's anybody to destroy the Enterprise, if it's not going to be the Dura sisters, Sela, Tomalocters, it needed to be a known quantity that has been at odds with the Enterprise before. I'm glad it could be the Dura sisters. I think that the sneaky fucking way that they go about getting the upper hand with Jordy's visor, which uh, is always an Achilles tendon for the Enterprise. You know, this thing's been hacked more fucking times than uh, Experian. (laughs) there are Uh, two things that are insecure in the galaxy your credit score and jordy's visor yeah i mean it's right up there with uh voyager doors just no locks on that thing at all you need that four that four digit pin soren being involved who is a very smart person to to and and you know the the tech know-how is there what's the fucking weapon that soren has promised the dura sisters is it his his uh bombs he's shooting at sons and causing him to supernova I presume so, right? Like that would be pretty powerful if the Dara sisters wanted to, you know, threaten the Klingon Empire. Yeah, that would be. Uh, I do. I'm sad we didn't get to see the Romulans in action. You just see that one dead Romulan dude. So the yeah, the plot toast, there is with, apparently with, that with his toaster cover and everything. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. That's the right way to do Romulan. Not fucking incestuous Lannisters Ugh, from Picard. God, just shut the fuck up. I don't want to remember that ever. <laughs> Victor Von Han <laughs> for Frank for Franken uh, gerbil or something. Yeah. Um, they were supposed to open the movie with the Romulans attacking, but they cut that for uh, more charming stuff, apparently on our old friend, Jerry Taylor's advice. So the story there is that uh Soren went to the Dura sisters said hey I can give you a badass weapon but we need you, you need to be my henchman we got to steal some shit from the Romulans you're going to help me do some dirty deeds you're going to drop me off on the station everything's going to be great the Romulans track him down presumably because the Duras uh house Duras is sloppy yeah Dura sisters kind of suck <laughs> like that's what a theme and all their appearances it's fine that whole plot all of it works I have no beef with any of it other than the fact that you put him in this fucking d12 bird of prey that is what 70 years old or some fucking crazy shit like that Mm -hmm. 
And you're going to have that be the ship that takes the fucking flagship of the Fed. And they even call attention to it like, oh, you know, they must be wondering if they really think they can get away with taking on the flagship of the Federation. It's a galaxy class. It's the most biggest and baddest of all the Star Trek of all the Starfleet vessels out there. But but just, just put them in a nice capital ship. Make it have been somewhat of a close fight. The first time they hit Enterprise and like score a shot and like, oh, shit, they got our code frequencies. Enterprise should have fucking unloaded and just wiped that thing off the map. Instead, you have this slow turning battle for the sake of making it seem somehow feasible that any of this could happen. I, you know, I think it's fixed if the like the first if they even say just like target their weapons array with the first shot and it just like knocks out their ability to really punch back. Hey, that's a great fix. Sure. I think that's all it was missing. It just. It was hard for me to watch the D go out like that. I would have liked to have been a little bit more. We're talking about a ship that has gone toe to toe with warbirds, Borg cubes, tin men, and every other goddamn thing out there. Uh, The evacuation scene to get everybody on the shuttle or the the technical manual. You mean on the on the the, um, saucer saucer? You said the shuttle. I would say, yeah, what what are all these children doing down in the star drive? There's no schools down there. All that stuff's up in the fucking saucer that this is gratuitous ushering of kids dropping stuffed animals. Yeah. And what Starfleet officer in charge of children will abandon them such that Jordy has to find them? Like, come on, man. (laughs) I don't know. They lose the star drive. And I've for, I guess, decades now carried a uh, axe to grind with Troy that she was responsible for crashing the saucer section when there's very well documented how to land a saucer on a planet side that doesn't involve what actually happened there. I did forget that the uh, the explosion of the star drive forced them to land that they did not intend to land behind the planet. After they were all. trying to, well, and they even got the positioning right. Like that the, the star drive you know, in, in the position of their orbit would have forced them down and that Troy lost helm control because of the shockwave. Like yes. she, she didn't have a choice. Like it just happened. You know, she was trying to get away and then physics did things. And that was the end of it. Still also find it hard to believe that all those people on the bridge will Riker on the bridge will Riker until Tom Paris was the best pilot in Starfleet. And you got the fucking guidance counselor at behind the wheel. He was in, he was in command. Like he's got, he's got to manage everything. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll put my girlfriend in charge of flying the ship. You know, she's, she's a full commander now. You know, she knows how well, like, there is no way this thing is not getting fucked up. And I'll be damned if I'm going to have this red mark on my driver. I'm not, I'm not losing the points on my driver's <laughs> license. Go Deanna. ahead, sweetie. You totally got this. Deanna, Deanna get over there. <laughs> Don't put the fucking, uh, you know, the human computer over there data on home. Yeah, just. She's too busy dropping our one use of the word shit that we can in our PG-13 movie. <laughs> sure. So then they crash land in a very long and gratuitous. This Dave Carson, director Dave Carson, he just likes destroying enterprises. He did it in yesterday's enterprise. He destroyed two enterprises in yesterday's enterprise. You, d- you didn't destroy the the war- the the uh, bird of prey, right? You noticed that, I'm sure. The bird of prey explosion. Oh, this is a famous this is a famous corner cut. When the bird of prey initially shows up and decloaks and then recloaks those two shots and the explosion of the bird of prey, those are all directly stolen from Star Trek Six. Those are not new shots. And when the when it explodes. Like when they shoot the, the, it down, it is hilarious. They make it cloak. Like it is like a total replay of Star Trek Six. They fuck with its cloak 
right? Because in the end of Star Trek Six, it's a cloaked warbird. It's a cloaked bird of prey that's shooting at the Enterprise. So they got to fuck with it. The they they fuck with it. They shoot a torpedo at it. There's this dramatic music that almost sounds exactly like the same score from Star Trek Six. The torpedo is going towards the bridge of the Klingon vessel. The two Klingon antagonists look at each other and then look at the torpedo before it blows them up. And then they use the exact effect shot from the same movie to blow it up. I mean, it is it is almost like a parody level uh, recreation. You go to the stock footage. You, you go to Larissa and Bator looking at each other in that last Starfighter moment. What do we do now? Bzz, Scouter goes over. We die. They explode. You use the stock footage of an old Star Trek movie for the, the warbird blowing up. Switch over to the Enterprise where Data goes, yes, and uh, a sigh of relief around the bridge. Switch over to the stock footage of San Francisco Starfleet headquarters. <laughs> just do it all. Just More do it all. like, yay. And just see how many, you know, old Star Trek movies worth of footage you can cram. In. Maybe some you could fit some matte paintings in there at some point. And then. Uh, I don't know. Give me a, a round of applause down in Cardassian hallway, which was, of course, <laughs> part of the uh, the Enterprise hallway system on that. We're, we're making these jokes because you're patrons. I, I hope you know. You know all these jokes. It's fine. Yeah. You're literally paying us to make this show. If you don't know these jokes, that sounds like a you problem. They crash. It's a long crash sequence. Uh, the ship gets way more fucked up than I think it should to the point where like seats are ripping out of the floor, which seems... Real yeah, silly. They go, they go. There is an amazing stunt on the bridge during the battle too, where like the guy like is like in the engineering computers and way back behind the tactical section, and there is a, a monster IED in that console that goes. The mother of IEDs explodes, and this dude flies above the tactical station and then lands yeah. like on and in front of the captain's chair. The it explosion ins- triggers the spring-loaded ejector seat that this guy <laughs> was Speaking of fucking console explosions, on the B, there are some hellacious explosions there when the Nexus ribbon starts hitting him to the point where I have to be like, do these uh, uh, cops, or uh, con and op stations have like gas mains running through them? Like... <laughs> I've seen a lot of console explosions, at least in... Uh, Oh, what's the good one where they bring out Seska that one last time? Fractured? Yes. The big explosion there where the fucking Kazon get rocked. Like, at least that's an engineering console. Like, that yeah. really might have been a fucking gas. I mean, but like, what what is the helm guy doing that he has just bricks and bricks and bricks of C4 packed behind that fucking thing? Uh, they all die anyways, because Soren is successful. He explodes the planet. I do like astrometric stuff, by the way. Look, cool. I did enjoy those scenes. I, I I like that you saw like everyone on the on on the vessel like trying to get out and then they all just die. Yeah. You know, all the kids, the all the stuffed animals. Yeah, they're all dead. And yeah, the I we skipped over but the astrometric scene was was not only did it look good, particularly for the time, but it is probably all, one of the better Picard data moments, right? Like where you know he's got a he's trying to be empathetic, and then he's gotta whip him back into shape as a superior, and then he lays a line out, which is you know like courage is an emotion as well you know and he's of course that's what he's trying to tell himself of course because data looks like a total bitch and and rightfully so picard the cool part of that scene for me is that picard's like i don't want to fucking deal with his bullshit like with data bullshit right now 
while I'm still thinking about my nephew that just died in a fire. Mm-hmm. And he's just kind of got like this, like n- now is not the time you're not doing any of this. I quit bullshit. Get your ass in the fucking chair and, and fix these, you know, yeah. help me with the space industry. I, it was kind of silly that it was Picard making these leaps of logic and be like, Oh, he's blowing up planets to influence a celestial. Fin-. Like that really should have been data postulating that, but whatever. They're still a cool scene. We've talked about most of the film at this point. Really, all the only piece that we haven't touched on is, you know, the climax, which is, you know, old dude fighting when when Kirk and Picard go back to confront Sorn. Minus 300 points that Kirk doesn't hit Sorn with the fucking double axe handle. It's true. I'll spit right in David Carson's fucking mouth. How dare you? How <laughs> but, dare you? But I think we're all here to hear you talk about the destruction of the D. We've kind of gone over what happened, but you haven't you haven't expressed your feelings. I know you haven't. They wanted a new model. The Enterprise E looked fucking sweet and as stink as I was about them destroying the D. When they do bring the E out, like sins are forgiven. Uh, again, I had the Duras sisters been driving something other than a fucking a, 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 a Pontiac Grand Prix. <laughs> You know, they put them literally the worst fucking thing possible. Like that was like watching this movie again. Here's the stupid part. This is the the really hard thing that I'm half getting around this. Um, one Q doesn't come up at all, and you can say, "Well, this isn't a movie about Q." Blah blah blah. Until we get to fucking whatever happened in Star Trek season two of Picard, where they they bust him out for the most frivolous shit. And, and I haven't watched it, so I can't say whatever. But for as hard as Picard gets hit by this, the fact he doesn't even consider invoking Q, whatever. And it's it's a silly conversation we keep having. But when you're friends with the fucking demigod, these are things that need to be called to question. I get it. It's not a Q movie. We're not going to involve him or whatever. Uh, hey, Captain Kirk, I need you to help me with this fucking dilemma. We got to go back out of the Nexus. We can control where we exit the Nexus at any point. And I need you to help me. And who am I to refuse the captain of the enterprise? So they pop right back in. So Soren thinks he just shot up Picard and he's walking. And then there's someone on the bridge and he goes, who the fuck are you? And I'm James T Kirk. And then they have a sloppy fight instead of just being like, Oh my God, all the fucking marbles are on the table in this, this final showdown. Let's just fucking gang tackle this guy. So, you know, no, no, we got to have the fucking cheesy 90s movie moment there. Wh- whatever. Let that play out, whatever. Picard can leave the Nexus at any point he wants. His fucking kid just burned up in a goddamn fire and a, a, a civilization has been eradicated because of this guy. Why can't he exit at the end of all good things and say, hey, um, I got to make a phone call real quick to tell my brother to change the fucking batteries and the smoke alarms. Also, we got to go deal with some shit real quick before a bunch of planets get blown up so this guy can do this crazy thing with a space anomaly. I always thought that it was that it had to you had to exit anywhere anytime where the nexus existed was just like what I got is what was implied by that. that it was I did limited. not get that implication and that is a very genuine generous um uh, gift that you have given the movie. 
I'll be honest, I never thought that that wasn't what was implied. I'm dead ass. Like, I never thought that it was, oh, you can go to any place at any point in space-time that you wish. I, they make such a thing out of the Nexus being a physical thing that moves through the universe and they have to move literally gravity to get it to move to a place where Soren can get into it. Like it's physicality and location are clearly key to the phenomenon. So it has to be to a place where the Nexus has been is that that has to be the limiting factor. I never conceived that it would have been possible for him to like go back in time and like kill Hitler or something like that was just not on the, not on the table. The only thing that I could think of them again, my interpretation watching this was that you can, you can you are, you are dealing with a slice of heaven. There are massive powers at play here that anything's on the table. The only thing that I could think as well, I don't want to interfere with the past too much. And at the end of the day, I'm John Luke Picard. I'm a good soldier and I am willing to shoulder tremendous personal loss for the greater good, uh, which then is immediately countered by the fact that you just brought fucking James T. Kirk back alive and radically changed the timeline that way, which jumping forward, Kirk dies. He does on a bridge. Ha ha ha. <laughs> Not his bridge, but a bridge. Good's done. In the time that he's trying to jump on the bridge, somehow Soren finds his fucking gun needle in a haystack and is able to blow whatever. They kill him, which is better than the first way he dies, which was just getting shot in the back. I don't know. I think maybe having him. I, I'm i not the biggest Kirk fan out there, but I, I really think he needed to die on a starship. I feel like his death in the prelude is exactly the way James Kirk should die. Like he died saving the ship. That's the way that man goes. Out. Yeah. I, and so, you know, I don't mind his death here. I like his little death speech. I like and that's what he gets as a death speech. I, if I'm going to give him like the perfect way to die, it would have been all that shit happens up in space. We can't get the fucking saucer away beam Kirk up and let Kirk fucking drive the star drive away as it's blowing up. So it gets the star drive out of the blast radius. It's going to be Picard. Yeah. Kirk dies on an enterprise saving, you know, really passing the, I, that really to me seems like the obvious way to fucking write Kirk off. Uh, whatever. So Kirk's dead. Picard's waiting for shuttlecraft to come pick him up. Presumably not knowing that his ship just got blown up. He drags Kirk's body out of the fucking valley they're in up to the top of the rocks, which I can't even imagine how gory that had to be. <laughs> and 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 creepy uh, and needless. And then he buries him under a bunch of rocks. Does he ever tell anybody that, hey, by the way, <laughs> I mean, we're presuming he doesn't tell anyone, but I, there's no indication he doesn't. I mean, he could have very well asked like stead straight away. This is what happened. This is Jim Kirk's body um, teleported, you know, to the top of this mountain. I'm going to bury it up there. I, I think you'd have some other officers on hand for uh, something like that. That's not that's not the kind of thing you fucking turn your nose up. Like, yeah, I know we're uh, got a massive um, rescue mission for a thousand plus people on the surface here, but there is zero point zero chance I'm going to miss fucking James Kirk's <laughs> surprise <laughs> funeral. <laughs> 
<laughs> Apocal event, time traveling, you know, Starfleet Uber legend James T. Kirk apparently saved all of our lives. Get the fucking IMAX cameras. This holodeck program is going to be the hottest thing since the fucking uh I don't know, the upgrade where the vaginas are able to get wet. Like this is Yeah, I I, I think my can head canon is is the told us bosses and like Admiral Nakamura or whoever's like, okay. Bury him, but keep it quiet. We don't need everyone to know this happened. Like, you know, like, I don't think he didn't tell anybody. I think that, like, Starfleet might have decided that they don't want to burden the official record with a bunch of time travel bullshit. Do you think it ever became public knowledge that uh, the Nexus is heaven and you can see all your loved ones again? I think they might have. Maybe that's why they're not mentioning it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, maybe we need to not encourage psychos to decide to drive their fucking ships into this thing. I did really like that uh, the Borg were as big of a part of this movie as they were. Yeah, that their their uh, brutality is why Soren is broken. I'm like, yes. You see the, you think you know what life is, particularly when you're a member of a long lived race like the Alarians. And then all of a sudden, this brutal force comes from a, a part of the galaxy, swoops in and murders everything you ever loved and doesn't care. And you can't negotiate with it. You can't reason with it. It makes, it turns you into a fatalist. I get it. So I wouldn't say it's a bad movie. You've come around at least some then. Uh, versus when I was 12 and stank because I didn't know the enterprise E was going to be super sweet. Yeah, I guess the, the strength here for me in this movie is the Duras sisters. Uh, it is Soren being a much better Star Trek villain and, and Malcolm McDowell having the intensity on screen to be able to hold his own opposite Kirk and Picard. I think there's some real bad plot holes specifically the nexus thing which i'm not saying that what you're saying is out of line and i think had had guinan put quantum leap rules on that you can only move through the time period you can exit any point beginning with your entrance that's fair uh and i think had they cleaned up uh the d death by putting something a little stronger than an ice cream tr- <laughs> a klingon garbage truck in there uh i would have been happier but I do think what you're saying that it is the most next geny of the next gen movies. It doesn't make it better than Nemesis or um oh, Jesus. first first contact. Uh, well, but maybe that's up for us to discuss later. I am not enamored by first contact as a Star Trek next generation property. Uh, but uh, overall, like I said, uh, comically inept and cheap production decisions with the uniforms aside. I I like how they try to translate this into a film and the quality of this movie begins and ends with the ability of Patrick Stewart and in his prime at this time uh, to just deliver a level of depth to the performance that makes it eminently rewatchable. And this is a little personal, but I think it it applies. You have kids. I don't have kids. I'm not going to have kids. I'm in Picard's position. And I think that's might be why it resonates as hard as it does with me. You know, this this is interesting to view it in that lens, because when I watched this one as a kid, obviously I didn't have any of that life context that 
this is, you know, where I would have something in common with this character. Now I've got entirely different other emotional priors. I don't have the same sort of like lack of extended family that Picard's going through. He's truly alone in this film, but there is something there that I connect to of that. The decisions you make in life, they have consequences that are both good and bad. Jean-Luc Picard is a legendary Starfleet captain who devoted his life to his craft and is going to be remembered for a thousand generations for the historic things that he did. But he will not have a son. That's a cool story thing to explore. And this is what this film does. So I like it. I want to jump back real quick to the Kirk stuff, because the more I think about it, the more it bothers me the way they had him die in this bridge. How poetic, too, would it have been like in the situation where I've laid out like someone has to fly the ship away because autopilot's broken and Picard goes to do it. And you could have replayed out the beginning of the movie with Kirk telling the actual captain of that Enterprise, no, you stay here. I was supposed to die in the engineering section of another man's enterprise. Let's do it right this time. If you'd yeah, restructure it so that you'd have to restructure a lot of the climax so that you can pay it off in space, of course. And I'm not quite exactly sure what that looks like, but I do like the symmetry that the film would end with like, okay, you know, Kirk's on the D you get a shot of him on the D that yeah. would be cool. That'd have yeah. been neat. They're going through what they're going through. They, they fight the Dura sisters or whoever, they have this critical or the fight moment. already happened and like they're trying to to triage a no win situation. They get yeah. beamed up. And what I, I what I think I would have preferred actually is instead of it being is that everyone is going into the star drive section because something's like wrong with the with the uh, with the uh, saucer saucer because that's where the iconic bridge is. Hmm. So you'd have to put him in the battle bridge, I guess, to like pull that shot off where he finally he sits in the captain's chair for the last time and he's piloting the ship away, mm-hmm. you know, which might not quite be right. But it might be interesting to put him on the bridge of the actual D and having to do something there and then die in the process. Certainly better than him dying under a pile of scaffolding. Yeah, like ultimately, I think you're right that it, uh, Kirk's death should have ultimately come in the chair. Um, and if the story didn't really try to make that a thing and I'm not sure if you could restructure it to make it work, but that, that is the platonic ideal of the, and to be fair, the the original way he was supposed to die was being shot in the back. And it was only under like heavy protest by everybody involved saying this fucking sucks. Please don't make us do this, that they rewrote the, the bridge thing and, and had a, what a $5 million reshoot budget on that. Yeah, so just for that st- stunt, yeah, basically better than what it was supposed to be. But maybe had they not been under the gun of finishing off season se- seven, the monumental task of making the infinitely excellent uh, all good things, DS9 role in the background and a fucking movie, they would have had the chance to like take a second look and be like, oh, we can do better with this. But yeah, I'm 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 glad we watched it. I'm still stink about a lot of stuff, but. Uh, it's good to finally be able to talk about real next gen at porn as next gen as much as that was fun. And as much as that was kind of real next. Gen. It was. Yeah. I'm glad that this film has risen some in your esteem. I think it deserves to. I mm-hmm. understand you'll never love it, but I'm glad you've come around to admitting that it's at least not bad. And I'll also say too, like, I don't think that this film needed 
Kirk or any of the old cast stuff. I understand why they put it in there, but I think if you cut all that out, the movie would still stand well on its own merit. Agreed. I think you could restructure it and not have any of that, and it would have it would have been good. So, and also, um, I, I know I keep dragging this out, but I mean, there there is a lot to talk here. What if they would have just let Kirk live? What what if Kirk was out there in the twenty fourth century? Like they the Wikipedia, the Memory Alpha, they were so excited at the idea of killing Kirk, but what if they didn't? Like, would that have come off as like, oh, this is so fucking stupid? They structured the whole movie around just bringing Kirk into the future. Why can't they let it go? Versus here we are, kind of like ho humming the way they actually brought him in and did kill him. Maybe there's alternate universes out there where they they did keep Kirk around. Yeah, actually. William Shatner himself goes like with the help of a ghostwriter, like wrote a series of official books of like an alternate universe where Kirk lived through generations and is a captain in the 24th century. Is he is a captain in the 24th century now? You know, I don't like that. I do like Kirk back as an admiral, just fighting everybody on the admiralty. <laughs> Just racist old Kirk. <laughs> he hates Klingons. He's like, you're in an alliance with these people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I Oh, one of the last thing before we totally wrap up this conversation. Uh, like I mentioned, $35 million budget. Box office, $118 million in 1994, which is a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Also, I saw that there were heavy uses of CGI. I thought the D looked great as uh in all the the modeling they use and they were using it towards the tail end of uh season seven as well but you compare that to voyager and even enterprise and uh it it was the early throws of cgi but money gets shit done well thank you very much to all of our lovely patrons who made this Speaking extra money <laughs> all this 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 extra episode of Egypt please possible we appreciate your continued financial support in in getting the podcast bills paid around here and uh hopefully you enjoyed this let us know if you did and maybe someday the people who are not contributing though we love them will uh will get to listen to it as well uh until we see you again next time peace peace